Well, welcome to the Faculty Podcast, brought to you by Reformed Theological Seminary in Washington, D.C., part of a 50-plus year endeavor to train pastors and other church leaders in the ministry of the gospel in the United States and around the world. My name is Scott Redd. I'm the president and professor of Old Testament here at RTS Washington. I'm joined by Dr. Paul Jean, senior pastor from New City PCA Church here in Northern Virginia and instructor in New Testament, Dr. Tommy Keene, our academic dean and professor in New Testament, Dr. Grace Sutanto, professor of systematics. And I haven't said it in a while, but hopefully not for long. He's, he's still our man in Jakarta, uh, but hopefully will soon be our man in the Washington DC area. And our Dean of Students, Dr. Peter Lee, who also teaches Old Testament alongside with me here at RTS Washington. Now we have a, a special treat today in that we are joined by Dr. Vern Poitras. Hello, Dr. Poitras. Yes, thank you for inviting me. It's great to have you. It's an honor to have you. And we're going to talk about, I'm sure, a lot of things, but we want to focus this conversation around the idea of science and faith. But before we get to that, I want to hand it over to Tommy Keene to give us a more in-depth introduction to our guest today. Well, it's, a, it's an honor to welcome uh, Dr. Poitras to, to the podcast. He was my uh, one of my dissertation advisors and, and mentors o- over the years. Um, he is professor of New Testament at Westminster Theological Seminary, and uh, he's the author of uh, numerous books on hermeneutics, on science, uh, mathematics, biblical interpretation, uh, uh, kind of every topic under the sun, uh, the common denominator of which is uh, the application of uh, Trinitarian theology to all areas of life and human thought. It's uh, one of the kind of beating uh, drums at the at the heart of uh, many of that many of those works, and I, I'll say he uh, Dr. Poitras has provided many of them uh, on his uh, website frame slash uh, flame dash poitras dot org. So you can uh, check uh, a lot of that material out uh, there. But uh, thanks for being here, Vern. We're glad to have you. Well, as I say, it's good to be here, and I appreciate the invitation. Uh, yeah, thanks. And uh, we wanted to speak to you particularly this morning about uh, the relationship between science and faith, a, a topic that you've written uh, a lot about and one that's becoming increasingly important part of uh, Christian dialogue um, in the world. I, I thought we'd start with just kind of more generally just how you came to uh, this area of research. Um, your your personal history is, is uh, you know, you've got a lot of interesting background there, both in math and in science, but also theology. How did you come to this topic and, uh, and, and why, why do you think it's a significant p- component for our, our discussion? Well, my love for mathematics goes back to kindergarten. <laughs> I, uh, so, so I've been there quite a bit. Uh, God gave me a love for mathematics, and he, he gave me some gifts in mathematics. So I won math contests and things. I thought I was going to be a college teacher of mathematics. So I, and I love science, too. I, I was an undergraduate at Caltech. And even then, it was a very secular institution. There was a tiny Christian group. But the overall atmosphere was was kind of uh, just ignore God, agnostic, or uh, so. Uh, even then, I had to think about some basic answers 
because uh, if the topic of Christian faith would come up uh, with my non-Christian friends, that was one of the first things they would ask. So I had an interest and I read uh, some of the things that were available uh, even then. And there were good stuff. There were good things on, on evolution. There were good things on the days of creation. Uh, and actually, I think that's a help to us now because uh, it was one of the books was Bernard Ram's book, A Christian View of Science and Scripture, uh, copyright 1954. And, and there's practically been no change at all in the basic options. Now, science, of course, continues to develop, particularly the biological sciences. The stuff has just exploded. But even then, the basic options for dealing with uh, a lot of the hot button issues were, were the same. They've been around. And I think that's a help to a, a layperson to realize this is not new. <laughs> Christian believers have been dealing with it and discussing it. And, and there are some things that are poorly done. You can expect that that's going to happen too, but also some things uh, written that are well done. So, so I had an interest from there. But then through a series of, of works in my life and heart, I was a Christian believer then, but through a series of things, I decided the Lord was leading me into making my primary area of study Bible theology. And, and maybe to be a pastor, I didn't know, but I went to seminary. So then I, the, the math and science became something like a hobby in the background. And because good things had already been written, I thought they don't need another book on evolution, right? Uh, because there are things out there. So it became something where I followed in the background, but after about 30 years of teaching at Westminster, I realized that God had given me a number of ideas that together would make up a book. And it, the book would not be about primarily days of creation or biological evolution, not primarily, but it would primarily be about a Christian view of science. Because that has to be, I'm convinced that framework is in the long run more important than the details of what you work. You, you can work, if you have the good framework that is biblically solid, then you can continue to work on some of the details and disputes. And uh, that will accommodate, I think, more than one uh, exploration of possible answers to how we, how we deal with modern science. So that, that was the history behind it. And then, so I wrote this book uh, called uh, uh, redeeming science. And then I thought I was through, but I, <laughs> I got at other plans, so to speak, because, because I began to perceive that there were other areas of academic research where a Christian approach uh, was very needed. Uh, again, a sort of framework. So framework for understanding language, framework for understanding society, uh, framework for understanding mathematics in particular. Uh, so I wrote a whole book on that uh, framework for understanding logic. So, so there are things that spun off of that. But then after some years, I realized there was really more to be said about Genesis 1 to 3 in terms of hermeneutics. So I wrote a second book called, uh, well, I can't even remember. I think it's called Interpreting Eden. That's really about 
focusing on hermeneutical principles that are to guide our understanding of those key first chapters. That's really helpful. Can you can you tell us a little bit more about like why is it important to have a Christian framework for these various disciplines? So like science, why can't we just go out and start measuring stuff and put things under a microscope and just be done with it? What 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 is what is it about science and and these other disciplines that requires a kind of Christian framework for thinking? Uh, right, it's because we're human and because we're sinful. <laughs> because human beings are not meant we're not created, we're not crafted by God to operate independent of God. And if you try to do it, what you end up with is a substitute for God. Now, I try to illustrate in the book Redeeming Science that the substitute most often for scientists is a natural law, a scientific law, seen as an impersonal thing, uh, kind of mechanics in back of the watchwork of the universe. And so what you've got is something that is contains fragments of truth because God is so faithful and is governing the world that they, they can seem to these people that it's mechanical. Uh, but I've sometimes framed it in terms of the, the basic issue is whether the last thing back and whether the universe as a whole is governed impersonally or personally. And that's all important, I believe. And most of modern science, well, the whole of modern science is based on the fact we're made in the image of God. We're, we're made so that we can think God's thoughts after him on a creaturely level. And what science are doing is thinking God's thoughts after him, concerning his thoughts about the governing of the world. <laughs> That's what science is. Whether or not the scientists will admit that that's what they're doing, they couldn't do it unless their own minds were in tune with God. In fact, atheists have a real difficult philosophical problem right there because there's no guarantee in an atheistic system that your mind will mesh with the reality out there. And, and some atheists have become deep, deep skeptics because they find they, they, they're no longer trusting their minds. So, you know, that's a long story in itself, but, but the positive aspect is that, that scientists, even the ones who say they are atheists, they're actually relying on God all the time because they're, they're thinking God's thoughts after him. And, and that's why science works. Uh, the, but the second thing that goes into there is that there's a counterfeiting, there's a distortion, as there is with all idolatry. You know, we're used to the, the idolatry of people bowing down to statues, right? But there can also be an idolatry of ideas, so that then that's more typical of philosophers, right? So, so the philosopher produces an idea of what is ultimate. And, and what is ultimate for the atheists, actually, the atheistic scientists think of themselves as many of them are materialists. The last thing back is matter. And matter does become a kind of substitute God because it's regarded as if it were basically eternal. Uh, of course, matter changes its forms, but uh, there, there can't be an absolute origin that doesn't involve the same kind of stuff at an ultimate level. Uh, if you're thinking in terms of the ultimacy 
of the material aspects of the world. So that's the way they think they're operating, but actually there's a second component, namely the idea of law. And, and the paradoxical thing about law is, you know, it's such a simple thing as uh, Newton's uh, law of gravitation, for instance, which is only approximation, it turns out, but it's a good approximation in most circumstances. What is that? It's not matter. It's an idea. It's, it's immaterial. And that's the characteristic of law. It's mind-like. And so the atheists, I think they have a real crisis that they, many of them don't realize that they actually need two things. And corresponding, of course, to the fact God created a world of things, right? But corresponding to what they think of as law is basically the word of God that's governing it. So there's actually two components in the, the um, creation narrative in Genesis. One, one is the creation of things, and the other is the speech of God that's creating them and specifying what they are and how they're functioning. And that's basically the law. That's so interesting. And, and the way in which we typically can kind of think about our world as, as impersonal, as de detached, and yet from a Christian perspective, there is nothing that is detached. Everything is, is a, a knowledge of God who is a personal being. Yeah, and that, and that uh, the, the, uh, the ID people, the uh, intelligent design people have, I think, been pretty much on top of the philosophical issue of, is the last thing back personal or impersonal? And that, uh, that a lot of the discussion among scientists and their detest, detestation, many of them don't like intelligent design because it brings in the idea of a personal designer and, and they, they have a, an inner resistance to that, which I think is a religious a, a resistance in at least in many cases. But you know, when once you see the, the importance of this personal and impersonal, it has ramifications. It's like the dominoes falling. Because for instance, the doctrine of creation, right? If if the word all is impersonal, then there's really no doctrine of creation. Things are just happening. And there's no doctrine of human nature as a distinct thing that is different from animals. Right? If we're not created in the image of God, then we're basically just animals. And so you get this people who, who almost sound as if they want humanity to die because we're interfering too much with the, the environment. So, so you get a, things like that. And then the doctrine of creation in Genesis 1 makes no sense unless there is a personal God and, and the creation of Adam as a distinct person without an evolutionary past would make no sense without a personal God that's doing something exceptional. The area of miracles makes no sense. See, if there's an impersonal law that's the last thing back, then you, you think of miracle as something that really doesn't fit into the system. But if it's a personal God, then miracle is part of the entire process, particularly the miracle of Christ's resurrection. That's a prime example. So you see how important this is to the Christian faith, right? If we deny the bodily resurrection of Christ, we are not really biblical Christians. But the pressure is on to deny exactly that because it doesn't fit into an impersonalist universe. Uh, it doesn't make sense. It's a violation of what they think of as the, the impersonal mechanism. Uh, 
But if it's personal God, then God tells us in the Bible why this is exceptional. Everybody knew it was exceptional. I mean, you read the narratives in the New Testament itself, and the people can't believe it, right? They know that people, dead men don't come back to life. They know it. Even though they don't have a lot of advanced science about the human body, they, they, they know the basic stuff. And so this is a very deep exception. How could anybody believe it? Uh, but God is explains it both in the Old Testament in prophecy and then afterwards in the New Testament when Christ explains the necessity of his death and resurrection, particularly in Luke 24. And then you see their personal purposes that show you how rational this is. It's rational in terms of God's personal purposes because Christ's resurrection is the foundation for a whole new order, which is part of his personal purposes, both for his own glory and then for our salvation. So there's no question for a Christian reader that this is completely rational, but it's a very different atmosphere. And then providence, that's that too. And I think that many Christians are feel the pressure of an impersonalist worldview impinging on them. And they treat the Christian faith as if it were mainly a psychological thing. Well, it does affect what we think. It does affect how we feel. It does affect the decisions we make. And in that sense, it has a psychological component. But it's, it starts with acknowledging a God who is there. As Francis Schaeffer, you know, during his own life, to his credit, he saw what was coming, right? When he wrote a book called The God Who Is There, he understood that for many people, they thought of God as, as basically a kind of projection that helps us psychologically. They didn't any longer believe in a God who actually objectively existed. And more than that, was ruling the whole universe. But that changes your idea of providence, because then you can pray to God, and he can do whatever is needed to be done. He can heal you through medicine. He can heal you miraculously. He can answer your prayers through the circumstances. He can answer your prayers miraculously. It's up to him, right? As the personal God, he does whatever he wants. That's an incredible, incredibly important point for me and as I'm doing my theology, but this idea of the irrationality of unbelieving approaches and, and the kind of radical rationality of believing in a personal God. You also, you've, you've made a, an important distinction drawing off of, of course, others as well about God's creatorly power. The fact that he is, he is above and transcends creation. And I'm thinking about the importance to that aspect of God's character being creator over and against creation or the creature and how we think about some of these questions like the Genesis questions. And, and you you rightly point out in the Bible, when, when miraculous things happen, people say, wow, that's a miracle, you know, which distinguishes it from a lot of ancient Near Eastern myth where you just kind of keep rolling along because that's what you expect to have happen. But the Bible actually assumes this kind of rational universe where a miracle is out of the ordinary. But how do we how do we help the unbelie I mean the, the the believer rather who is wrestling with questions like questions about Genesis and I know that you know we there's a variety of biblically faithful interpretations where reasonable Christians could disagree um, or when we look at the flood and 
people say, well, how, how could water possibly have that kind of, how could a flood possibly have that kind of magnitude on earth? Or you're kind of looking at these different things like the Red Sea event, and there's sometimes, you know, attempts to explain these things scientifically. How would you help a Christian sort of navigate those waters of how to understand these grand events that we find in the Old Testament in light of this idea of God being a personal creator? Yes. Well, it means that God can do things that are outside of the bounds of the ordinary. And so there's no need to go in and say, well, now we've got to explain this in a way that, as it were, explains it away, that, that in the end, it isn't really a miracle, but, but you know, conforms to modern scientific law, and it's just an extraordinary coincidence. Well, God does things the way he pleases, as I said. Now, he can use coincidences, all right, in a very powerful way. Uh, and, and one of them is actually uh, when Joshua and the people of Israel crossed the Jordan, it actually says that the waters were stopped up uh, further north. Uh, and there's actually a place where, where there, the, there's uh, kind of cliffs on both sides of the river and soft things. And, and within recorded history, there's twice where the water has been stopped up. So you say, wow, you know, that wasn't a miracle. It was just a coincidence that this, you know, there was this landslide at just the right time. Well, guess what, you know, guess who, who superintended the landslide at just the right point? So, so it, in the end, it doesn't matter. You know, if we didn't know any of that and we thought, well, God just did it and broke all the norms for what we normally expect, those norms are the norms for the normal, right? And they don't bind God. God is not a prisoner of the universe that he created. So, you know, if you start with the idea that the real law is the word of God, then the real law contains exceptional things because it's personal law. So there's, there's things like that. But then the second thing I would say is that there are resources out there. And, and I would advise people actually to read more than one. Uh, you know, the big, one of the big divides is between old earth creationists and young earth creationists, right? Who, the young being within the last 10,000 years. Well, you know, read a little bit of both. Uh, don't just say when something comes along that looks good, uh, that that must be the answer. In the, the book that I referred to, Redeeming Science, I give no less than 10 views of the days of creation. And those views have been around for decades. Uh, I think most of them are there in Bernard's Ram's book that I, I mentioned. So it actually gives you some perspective to say, well, this is my preferred view, but I know that, that people who want to follow scripture and to listen to what the scientists claim, that they, there are some others who take different views and, and so it, I wish that sometimes the, uh, the amount of, uh, of tension would, would uh, decrease because of that. Uh, but there's also a little uh, model that I like to use, and it's there in my book. 
uh, that talks about the general framework again. The general framework is basically what's called general revelation and special revelation. So you have general revelation, which means uh, God's manifesting himself in the world. Uh, so all of his rule of the world is a part of his, uh, it's, it's simultaneous with that is general revelation that shows he's working. And then there's special revelation. And that's what we have in scripture. Now that's subdivided, there's a little complexity. It's subdivided into verbal revelation, which we have in scripture and nonverbal revelation, which we have in miracles uh, and, uh, and special uh, prophetic actions and various things like that, Jesus healings and so on would be special revelation. But then he explains often the significance of what he's doing. That would be verbal revelation. Okay, so so when we think special revelation, we think of the Bible in particular as the deposit, as a permanent gathering together uh, by God's himself, superintending it of his own word to us. And in general revelation, it's sometimes said the book, the, the reformers spoke of two books, the book of nature and the book of scripture. And I understand that because it's a way, colorful way of talking about the two sources of knowledge of God, which because there's only one God, they, they must harmonize, by the way, <laughs> right? And that's part of the key to Christian living too, to say, I'm finite, I don't necessarily I'm not in necessarily able to give all the answers for how these two fit together, but they do fit together. And God is a trustworthy God. What he says in scripture shows me enough of who he is, particularly in the climax of, of Christ's uh, sacrifice, which is you know an enormous display of God's faithfulness. On that basis, I'm gonna trust him even though I don't have all the answers everywhere. That's that's basic Christian living, right? Of saying it's trust and not checking God out uh, first everywhere. So they talk about the book of nature, but I'm a little uh, nervous about that because it sounds as if there's two ver books, both of which are verbal material, both of which are equally authoritative. Well, general revelation is authoritative because it's God working but it's not verbal. And that makes an enormous difference hmm. because when we come to interpret it here, we are, we're down below as it were. And, and the human being is reading scripture on the one hand and he's looking at general revelation on the other hand. Uh, but the scientist, what the scientist does is, is make verbal formulations and those formulations are fallible unlike the Bible. Now, theology here down below, you might say, the human response to the Bible in theology is itself fallible. So we've got two levels, uh, two things that are fallible of human productions, the theology on the one hand and the science on the other hand. And there can be discrepancies and tensions between those two because they're both fallible. They're both human responses. And when there are tensions, you don't immediately know what is the source of the tension. And this is something that could get people in trouble because either they feel I have to give way to science every time because the scientists really know their stuff. Well, 
the best of them do, but the best of them are still fallible. And the best of them are also influenced by this overall atmosphere of impersonalism, which is an important mm -hmm. point yeah. of saying, right, if you exclude miracles from the beginning, miracles, including miracles, let's say during the, the six days of creation, if you exclude that and you're wrong, then you're gonna get it wrong all the way down the line, right? And you're trying to reconstruct uh, the origin of the universe. So, so there's, there's some key points here where the atmosphere of impersonalism in modern science does affect the claims of, of scientists and sometimes in radical ways, particularly when they're trying to reconstruct the past. If they're trying to reconstruct, let's say the resurrection of Christ, come on now, you know, everybody can see if you don't believe there can be resurrection, then you're gonna get that wrong. And it isn't because you're a scientist, it's because you've incorporated certain assumptions about the nature of the science that are invalid. So when we've, but when we've got conflict, then you have to look at both sides and say, who's made a mistake? And maybe you can figure it out, maybe you can track it down, and maybe you can't. You, well, we have to have patience, right? And those of us without competence in science or without a lot of competence in theology have to read people who are more competent that can help us, but those people are fallible. Now there's, there's two reasons, however, I believe that a priority has to be given to scripture. Now, in one sense, there's a priority to general revelation because it was there first. <laughs> as soon as God creates the world, there's general revelation, right? And scripture as a written form doesn't come along until later. So there's chronological priority, but so what? One of the things that gives scripture a kind of a personal priority is that God designed us as image of God to have personal communion with him. And just like with personal communion with other persons, language and communication is a really, really central part of that. And so God designed to you, he intended before he said anything to Adam, before he said anything to Eve, he had intended that there would be rich communication both ways. And that that communication would have a key role in the development of human life and human flourishing. And so, so that's even before the fall. But of course, sin ruins things and makes it even more important. And that's the second point about the Bible, that the Bible is uniquely designed, unlike the, the revelation of God in, in, in creating the sun, let's say, uh, nine, uh, Psalm 19. Uh, the Bible is uniquely designed to overcome the problem introduced by sin, not by itself, but by proclaiming the work of the Savior, right? by proclaiming Jesus Christ. And if people don't start with Jesus Christ and reconciliation to God in Christ, then they're not on the right foot in terms of their attitude toward God as a whole, their attitude toward the world as a, uh, as a domain ruled by God. Amen. So the Bible has a key role and has a, a priority in that sense, but it doesn't mean that we can't misunderstand the Bible. Uh, Dr. Poythers, this is uh, Peter Lee. I, I so appreciate everything you're saying about the, the relationship of um, uh, the work of scientists in general revelation with theologians in, in special revelation and, and the priority of scripture. I wonder though, do you, do you can you think of a time when um, when the work of scientists in general revelation 
uh, has caused us to reanalyze our exegesis of scripture and actually clarified our view of scripture as opposed to, you know, we generally think of it as the, as, as you mentioned, that the Bible dictates how we understand general revelation, which is absolutely true. Is there a time, can you think of an example where uh, we actually benefited uh, with a much more refined understanding of our doctrine or of scripture because of the work of scientists? Right. Well, you know, I'm not an expert in the, the history of the interaction of science and theology. Uh, but in connection with my study of Genesis uh, 1 and through 3, uh, I have had to encounter a uh, discussion of the Copernican revolution. And, and that's often cited as a case where the, the theologians got it wrong. But it's very interesting that Calvin's commentaries on Genesis, uh, Calvin and Calvin knew about Copernicus, but it doesn't seem that he was strongly influenced. He was working as an exegete of the Bible, right? That was his skill. Uh, but when he came across the discussions in, in Genesis, he realized, and this is primarily his sensitivity to the Bible and to the God of the Bible, he realized that God was addressing everybody not primarily the experts of what he called recondite issues. Recondite meaning specialized issues. And he discussed, for instance, the fact that the, uh, the two great lights were the sun and the moon. But astronomers in his time were saying that Saturn was actually bigger than the moon in terms of its measurable diameter, but it didn't look bigger because it was much farther away than the moon. And the way he discusses that is a sound way. So, so he's discovering this in a way that, that he's interacting with the scientific claim, but he doesn't even know he's not an expert to know and check out in detail, are the scientists right? That that Saturn is actually bigger, but he doesn't insist that it can't be because the Bible says that the two greatest lights are the sun and the moon. The way he gets it is by understanding God because he notices that God's purposes are to address through Moses, address the ordinary person. So he addresses it in terms of what nowadays is called the phenomenal level of the visible level. Uh, the moon is bigger to the eye, much bigger than the planet Saturn, which is just, you know, kind of a speck of light. So he's saying God is talking in an ordinary way to ordinary people. And I think that has been uh, an insight that, that one could have wished that theologians had much earlier <laughs> in the history, because what sometimes happens is the theologians in their zeal to, to promote the truth of the Bible, consider the Bible as offering us recondite, that's Calvin's words, recondite theories of astronomy or of the composition of things. And in fact, the Bible, God is unembarrassed. I'm ultimately, absolutely convinced God is unembarrassed to be addressing ordinary people. And actually, that's one of the ways in which he, we, he calls on 
on the, the intellectuals to humble themselves of saying, you've got to understand you're on the same level as everybody else. I'm not going to get into all these special things where you pride yourself on, on knowing more. I'm going to tell you what everybody can see, right? And, and Genesis 1 operates on that level, and Calvin saw it. And that's fairly, you know, when you think about it, it's fairly early in the development of the scientific revolution. It shows that you could say science in one way was an occasion for Calvin addressing this, but it's really his doctrine of God and his understanding of the fact that, that God is communicating to everybody, not just to the specialist. That was the key thing. And I think it's helpful to this day because the prestige of the science has grown and grown over the centuries to the point where people feel the most, the most precious and deepest and uh, sort of most prestigious truths are the truths that come out from science and they are precise and they dig into the sort of deep things of the world. And so if the Bible is to hold its own ground, then it must have done that too. And, and it's, it's, it's a kind of pattern of thinking, which I believe is understandable, but is mistaken. <laughs> because I'd say God knows all about nuclear fusion. After all, he made the sun and it's happening there every day. He knows all about that, but he doesn't have to prove anything by discussing that in the Bible. What he discusses in the Bible is what we need to know. What, what the little tribal member in the New Guinea highlands needs to know and what you and I need to know just as much. Namely, I made everything, right? And don't worship the sun and moon and stars, right? Worship me, who's the one who made all this. So, it, so it's on a level of, of, it's completely true, but it's on a level, you might say, of simplicity, of ordinariness, rather than the level that the scientist is expecting. So, so scientists can easily critique the Bible without understanding what it really is and the level in which it's addressing us. That really is so helpful and encouraging to hear how you just articulated that. I'm, I'm glad that we're not required to believe in a flat earth now. <laughs> though, though that the flat earth thing, that's mostly a myth because, because the Apostle Paul, for instance, is an educated highly educated Roman citizen, the, the, the knowledge that the earth was round was already centuries old among the Greek astronomers. So he knew that, uh, but if it doesn't enter into his writings, you know, because it's not relevant. Dr. Poitras, um, thanks so much for being with us. I have benefited so much from your teaching over the years. I, I confess that I don't think I really understood it during seminary, but afterwards it really began to click and was uh, formative, especially during my doctorate program. Um, I had two related questions. So you've written quite a bit on science mathematics, but you've applied your God-centered approach to philosophy and sociology as well. Are those fields that you specialized in or just studied independently? How did you arrive at such a like mastery knowledge of those fields where you were able to write uh, a God-centered approach to those two, it seems very different fields from math and science. Yeah, that's a good 
question, perceptive question, because you're right that I came into those later. But there, there were definite reasons why. One is that the social sciences have grown in their influence and virtually displaced the role of philosophy, I think, in many respects among the elite cultures of the West. So that the people are highly influenced by them, either by scientific sociology, that's one of the, the subdivisions, or by critical sociology, which you see variants of Marxism and various people who, who are taking up the cause of the oppressed. And uh, you, uh, you know, when I say that, you, many of you will say, you know, the, that's that's out there, right? It's influenced the whole university environment. But I saw it because it was influencing biblical interpretation, because social social scientific uh, tools for interpretation were coming into biblical studies, and uh, and the net result was going to be that social structure was considered as a human construct. And so God cannot escape the culture or limitations of culture. It's destructive of the biblical authority in the long run, but it's a, it destructive in a subtle way because it, it captures uh, God within the finite bounds of what it thinks is human society. So I thought that needs to be reformulated in a Christian way. The whole thing needs to be for the sake of the doctrine of scripture and for the sake of a sound method of interpreting cultural environment, because God does operate. He speaks into cultural environments. He's not ignoring it. He's not ignoring the fact that the Egyptian gods included God of the Nile, which he's attacking by turning the Nile into blood. He, he knows all about that. So God is not unaware of this social structure, but it's God who has, who has ordained it, right? That not that he improves all of it, but he's thoroughly in control. So that's what we needed, right? So, so what I did was to think we need to just start at the very beginning with the whole idea of human relationships very far back. Don't just interact with the, the form of social science that you find out there. So basically, I wrote most of the book without reading any social science. <laughs> it was just kind of scandalous when you think about it. But I thought, I'm going to go to the Bible, right? What does it say about human relationships? And what it says about human relationships is like father and son, right? And husband, and wife, those things go back to the finality of divine relationships between persons of the Trinity. Uh, as a wife, you've got to be careful, of course, because there's no sexual, you know, we, we're not polytheists who think of gods as having sex and producing more gods. But the point is that, that the idea of fellowship between man and woman is a deep intimacy, right, that is a mirror of the intimacy that is ultimately the intimacy of the persons of the Trinity. So we can't understand human society without first understanding the Trinity, right? That's gotta be our starting point. Well, it's, you, you can understand if, if I'm thinking that way, and basically I'm gonna start with the father and the son and the bond of love in the spirit between the two, that's gonna be my starting point. I'm not writing a typical sociology book <laughs> anymore, right? I'm saying we just got to blow this apart and put it back together in our own way at a very fundamental level.
that's why I didn't read the sociology first, because I wanted to do, as it were, biblical view of human society, biblical view of human relations, where those can never be understood apart from divine personal relationships as the foundation, as the archetype. That then I did read some in sociology, but I found I didn't need to read very much, right? Because I saw, yeah, here, here's, here's how it fits into the system, which I've already <laughs> made, uh, right? And philosophy, that was a different kind of story because I woke up to a certain point, I was doing this, what I call my the Kuyperian project, basically, Abraham Kuyper, you know, Christ is Lord of every inch of, of uh, ground that exists. Uh, I know you folks know that, but, but I, I even wrote a book, The Lordship of Christ, which is sort of a, a update of Kuiper's vision because Kuiper, the thing of, he was, he was a, you know, a man with clay feet like any of us, but his vision for the Lordship of Christ, his zeal for the Lordship of Christ is tremendous. And, and so that was one of the things that made me go after these fields and to say, we must, have, we must assert the Lordship of Christ over every sphere of academic life. And philosophy, maybe not so much now, but in the past, has had a very dominant role among the intellectual spheres of Western civilization. So that's a key thing to redo. But what happened to me is I thought, well, Van Til and John Frame in his history of Western philosophy have both done extensive critiques of non-believing philosophy, autonomous philosophy, you might call it. But is there such a thing as a Christian philosophy? Well, Herman Doiverd and the Neo-Kyperians thought that there was, and it was a valiant effort. But I think there were some flaws, uh, you know, and I, I get into a little bit of, of them in my book on redeeming philosophy. But what happened was I woke up to the fact that I, I thought that John Frame had put together most of the major pieces. He does basically a Christian epistemology and the doctrine of the knowledge of God. And he does a Christian ethics and value system in the doctrine of Christian life. And those are two main components. And then there are, within modern philosophy, there are a number of subdivisions like philosophy of science and philosophy of logic uh, and philosophy of, of humanity. So, so the, my book on logic had dealt with the one and the book on science dealt with the one. The human psychology, I felt that biblical counseling was, was uh, addressing that better than I could. So about the only major thing that was left was metaphysics. So, but I decided that Frame's multi-perspectivalism had an implicit metaphysics that was worth explaining. So, so basically the, the, the whole thing is I didn't do a lot of reading in philosophy either. <laughs> I looked at the Bible and the doctrine of the Trinity as a, the foundation for Christian metaphysics. So Dr. Fortes, as you look at the next uh, 10 years, do you think there are particular fields that would benefit from your God-centered approach? 
Um, I've thought about actually applying your approach to uh, organizational behavior. I have some uh, background in the field of like business administration and so forth. And I thought it would be interesting to apply that approach to uh, organizational behavior, but do you see any fields that could benefit, especially just everything that's going on uh, from this God-centered approach? Um, I do. Uh, I, uh, I almost want to say, Paul, go and do one on, on uh, uh, the Christian approach to organizational behavior, though I would hope that that could benefit from my work on redeeming sociology, because it's called redeeming sociology, but it's really broad in that it's redeeming our view of human relationships. It's very, it's quite broad. Uh, but then after I'd finished this series, you know, I'm not, I'm, uh, it, it's almost by accident where you might say, yeah, it's a providence of God, right? There are no accidents in that sense, but but it surprised me that I ended up getting into these areas because, but, but I saw needs. Uh, but one of the things that was left over when I thought I'd finished was history. And a number of people, I didn't feel myself as very competent in that area, but another pe number of people, including my own wife, who, who is more competent as a historian than I am, uh, a number of people kept coming back to this Biblical history has its own story, right? Because historical critical mov movement intended, uh, intended to reconstruct the history of Israelite uh, religion and the New Testament on essentially non-miraculous assumption of, of the banning of miracles. So the view of history that they had was a highly defective and destructive view of history. And of course, it's influenced biblical interpretation in enormous ways over a period of centuries. But other people besides me have already told that story. But the reason why those people were so compelled in their own mind to do the historical criticism was because of what was happening in the development of secular history. Right, so there was already a framing. You look, for instance, at Ernst Trulch at the turn into the 20th century, he has this essay on dogmatic and historical methods where he puts his finger on the problem, except he has the wrong solution. Right? He is an advocate for historical criticism as basically the only way to conduct yourself in an academically respectable way in your, in your uh, examination of scripture and he sees the vast tension between that and the methods of theology. So Trelch is seeing the thing at a fairly early point of he's seeing the roots of it, except as I say, he gives the wrong answer. But, but the point of, of citing Trelch is because he's driven by uh, his view of what's happening in uh, academic historians who are examining things like, you know, the, the American Civil War or the age of Napoleon or, or the Reformation, whatever it is that they're examining, they're using methods that presuppose the non-miraculous again, that there's, there, there's a closed, and Charles, he lays this out, there's a closed nexus of cause and effect into which there can be no interventions. 
so you presuppose that for all of history. So I felt, you know, biblical history cannot be treated in isolation from the larger assumptions that are part of the guild of professional historians. So that needs to be addressed. So in the end, I did it. it the book is coming out. It's in press right now with Crossway. It's called Redeeming Our View of History. All right, and then there's another one, namely computer science, because of the vast influence now of com computational technology, information technology. And I had a Westminster student with a background in computer science who took my course on, on the theology of science. And I said, would you like to explore this? He wrote a little booklet, which got published by PNR, I think it was. So, the, it, you know, it was just booklet size, but I think, again, that was a piece. Now, there may, may be other things that are coming uh, I'm not aware of, but there is going to be a continuing need. Uh, or, well, one of the big things, of course, is in medicine, right? And where there's going to be more pressures by the pro-abortionists and by the euthanasianists and by the, the uh, transsexual people. Uh, for the medical uh, field to, to cave in. So, so there's going to be a continuing need there. Well, yeah, I thought about this even when sometimes I read about Elon Musk. He's trying to make uh, interspace travel possible. And it's an interesting topic, I think, for believers because we think about redemption in terms of the new heavens and the new earth. And at the same time, technology is moving in a direction of, well, you know, interspace travel or artificial intelligence. And so I thought about your works and I thought about, it would be interesting to explore these topics which seem more relevant, uh, but from an explicit, explicitly God-centered approach. And so thanks for sharing those thoughts, Dr. Quigris. Yeah, I was thinking as well about informational technologies and there's so much that the scripture has to say about the word <laughs> and, um, and, and, and some of the implications of that, even the development of the alphabet and the codex throughout, you know, that has that happens along the lines of redemptive history. And there's, there's a lot of interesting food for thought there. Um, Dr. Poitras, I, I always get nervous when someone quotes me back to myself, but I'm about to do it to you. I remember chatting with you a few years ago and in a group, and you were talking about some of these different approaches to interpreting miracles in the Bible, whether that's sort of just extraordinary events, like of course, creation, obviously, or the Red Sea. And you were talking about some more sort of what might be thought of as sort of conservative, maybe literal readings of scripture. And you, you said something along the lines of, you said, well, I don't you know, agree with that interpretation. Those are my people. You said, those are my people. And I, and I remember thinking, what a wonderful way to, talk about the importance of reading scripture in light of this personal creator God, this non-contingent God who has a saity and, and, and who rules over the world to his good pleasure. And I just love that. I love that idea of recognizing, listen, even if I don't agree with a particular reading, I am looking for my people and my people are the ones who take God's word seriously and how God reveals himself in scripture seriously. And I just want to thank you for your work to help 
people think through scripture seriously and in a worshipful, honoring way, recognizing the lordship of God uh, in our study. And, and I just thank you for your work in that regard. Yeah, well, uh, I, I appreciate what you said, but the, the honor belongs to the Lord, of course, but I think it is important that we take seriously the picture of the unity of the body of Christ in 1 Corinthians 12 and in Ephesians 4 and Romans 12 as well, and not forget that in the zeal uh, to you know, establish things that, that have their own importance for the health of the body of Christ. Uh, I do believe that, that sound doctrine is also healthy doctrine. It's healthy for the church. And, uh, but, but then you want to say, and, and you know, I've tried to do it with my book on under, understanding dispensationalists, right? Because I disagree with them uh, in, in some interpretive matters. Uh, but but I believe they're Christian brothers, and I want to build bridges, and and express my love and respect for them in the midst of that disagreement. I grew up a Baptist, uh, and and I heard the gospel in a Baptist church, and and uh, I'm not Baptistic now, but. Uh, I want to say those are my people. <laughs> I have those those ties of respect uh, backwards. Uh, to them, so that you know, that's the kind of thing that uh, that I I hope that we can grow in in doing. And it, you know, the, for reform seminaries, we're we're zealous for true doctrine, and I I believe there's good reason. I think there's, if anything, one of the problems that we're seeing in evangelicalism today is more the the fact that we've got to, to love one another and the way to love one another, that's right, of course, but we've got to, the way to love one another is to, to give, uh, put the doctrine on a second tier, right? That uh, because the doctrine divides and love unites, except that doctrine, love that's not informed by doctrine is not love. So, so you, you can't win <laughs> by by prioritizing what you got to do is have your doctrine inform your love and your love inform your doctrine both ways so that you grow in both. But it, so I believe, you know, I have a deep respect for the reform seminaries because they're, they've discovered the richness of doctrine. And I think at their best, they realize, you know, this has got to be out there in the church because it, it strengthens people. It stirs up their hearts to love God with all their heart. Here's love, right? How yeah. can you love God with all your heart if you don't know the majesty and wonder and awe of who he is? Yeah. <laughs> so so in, when I first was exposed to Reformed theology, it was later on because I grew up in the Baptist circles that were evangelical, but they weren't explicitly Reformed. They weren't explicitly anti-Reformed. They were just sort of... Uh, just general. So I discovered Reformed theology reading John Calvin's Institutes. Wow. And one of the things that impressed me, one of the things that drew me in was I discovered that Calvin loved God. Mm. <laughs> so, so if that hadn't been that combination, I think it would have been more difficult for me. Yeah. yeah. Wow. Well, thank you for your theological inquiry so 
interwoven with love. And uh, I, I, we, we've all benefited from it in one way or another, either as your students uh, directly or from afar. Um, and brothers, I've enjoyed this conversation. Uh, thank you so much for joining us for it. And to everyone else, we look forward to seeing you again next week. Till then, take care. I did my seminary work in Westminster in California in the uh, mid to late nineties. And, uh, and I, and I enjoyed it. There's no doubt of that, but uh, one of my uh, few regrets I have in life is not getting the chance to study with you. And so uh, I try to compensate by reading books and listen to whatever audio recordings I can get. And so it, it's exciting. And I'm really excited to have you here with us today. Uh, well, you studied with some good men out there. Uh, they, they were okay. They were okay. <laughs> Vern, are you yeah. still running uh, Linux? I am. I love it. <laughs> you, you, you have persisted. I, I, I finally gave up trying to get everything to work. But... Oh, it's getting, it's become easier and easier. But they're, they're, Tommy and I have background. I, I'm a, a primarily a Linux user because it, there's, there's a great things about it. Now I'm a kind of computer uh, uh, geek, uh, you know, like it's, it's just, it's, it's part of the, you know, science and technology background. I, yeah. I love the innards of computers, so. What's Linux? <laughs> uh, Linux is a, the operating system behind Android. Oh. Uh, most people don't know, but it's uh, open source free operating system. You can update to your heart's content and pay zero. <laughs> and yeah. uh, it's, it's, uh, it's quite powerful. Sounds like the operating professor for uh, reformed uh, <laughs> seminary professors. <laughs> yeah.